And King Josiah commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the hosts of heaven. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. Joining us today to talk about idolatry in the Bible is the Reverend Dr. Walter Meyer III. Gentlemen, how are you? Doing very well, Willie. I'm pretty excited to have our guest with us here today, so I'm going to skip my usual weather posting and let him just jump right in. Great to be with both of you brothers on this on this production. So Dr. Meyer is a professor at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Meyer, please tell us a little bit more about yourself. Well, I joined the faculty here at Concordia Theological Seminary at the end of 1989, and I'm in the exegetical department, which is the department which studies scripture in the original languages and then interprets what the text is saying. My specialty is in Old Testament, and so I teach here at the seminary Hebrew and the core courses for the MDiv program in in Old Testament, and I also teach master's degree courses and PhD course, PhD in missiology, and the course there is Old Testament Paradigms for Mission. In the core MDiv program, The core courses consist of Pentateuch 1, Pentateuch 2, Major Prophets and Psalms. And so I teach those as well as Hebrew. And then I teach a few electives here as well. And then Greek readings. And I understand you graduated from Harvard. I don't remember the year, but your dissertation topic is actually what kind of attracted us to have you on the program, writing about the Asherah in general. Is that correct? Well, I graduated from Harvard, you're right, in 1984. And then I went on to teach at Concordia River Forest for five years and a quarter before coming here to Fort Wayne. But my dissertation at Harvard was entitled Asherah Extra Biblical Evidence. So I was doing a study of the goddess, but I was looking at the evidence actually outside of Scripture, which was considerable. And that was one of the limiting factors then with regard to my dissertation. I won't tell you how old I was in 1989, Dr. Meyer. So. <laughs> But very glad to have you on the show. Yeah, well, it's great to uh, be on the show with, with two former students, and so I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, and I think I speak for Zelman when I say we both have profited greatly from your academic efforts, and we appreciate your time in the classroom and, and all of your contributions to the, to the church at large. So again, thank you for agreeing to come on this podcast. Well, it's my privilege, and I thank you for those kind words. So, well, let me ask you this before we dive into the topic. What made you want to study these things so deeply? Why, why Old Testament idolatry? Well, I had a love for the Old Testament to start with. And actually, that goes back to when I was a boy growing up in 
my parents' home. My father was a pastor, and we would have family devotions. We read from a Bible story book, and I always thought that the Old Testament had these neat stories, you know, like adventures. And so they held my interest. And as I grew older, I came also to appreciate not only the literary aspects and the adventure aspects, so to speak, but also the theological aspects and how the Old Testament, though, you know, dealing with primarily the nation Israel and Israel in the time before Christ, how this literature still speaks to us today and is so relevant for us today. And so there are many aspects, as you know, your audience knows, you know, to the study of Scripture and specifically the Old Testament, many different topics to take up, routes to pursue. But one of the recurring themes in the Old Testament or one of the recurring topics is this matter of idolatry. So for a person who wants to study the Old Testament and go through the various books, that, that there's going to be that encounter with the matter of idolatry. It's unavoidable. And so what is a good working definition of idolatry? Idolatry can be defined as having something or someone, something or someone in your life first, aside from God. So anything that is having your greatest love for which you have the greatest affection in which you put your trust which you have first in your life other than God. So we are, and we know this from the first commandment and throughout all of scripture, to to love, trust in God above all things at all times. And whenever that is not taking place and we have a higher love, a trust, attention for someone or something else, that is idolatry. If it's not directed to the Lord, it's directed elsewhere, and that's wrong. That's breaking the first commandment. One of the things that comes up continually in the scriptures, Dr. Meyer, is the, the Lord God speaks of idolatry in terms of adultery. And that can seem kind of unusual for us because, you know, we think of adultery primarily in, in you know, sixth commandment kind of sexual terms. Why would the scriptures refer to idolatry as adultery. That's because, especially in the Old Testament, the covenant relationship between Israel and God was likened to a marriage. So yes, God chose Israel out of all the nations of the earth to be in a special relationship with them, with the Israelites. And the purpose for that was to fulfill his plan of salvation for fallen humanity. God announced this plan right after Adam and Eve fell into sin. And this plan is put forth in Genesis chapter 3, specifically verse 15, where the first gospel appears, spoken by the Lord, the promise of the coming Savior. And so this coming Savior, of course, would be a human being, a descendant of Eve and Adam, but also very God. He had to be God in order to accomplish salvation for the fallen world. But according to his human nature, then God decided that he would be coming from the nation Israel. And so it was a matter of God's pure grace that he chose Israel. Actually, he chose Abraham and then his descendants. So the other two patriarchs, Isaac, Jacob, and then the nation Israel developed from these patriarchs. And then, yes, God's plan was that the Savior, the promised deliverer, would come from Israel. So God was in a special relationship with this nation. 
was a privileged position. And he made his covenant then with Israel. And here's the point. This covenant relationship in many places in scripture is likened to a marriage with God as the husband and Israel as the wife. Now, we look at the history of Israel, and to a large extent, it's a sad history because Israel repeatedly broke the covenant, was unfaithful to the covenant. And that's where this marriage imagery comes in, and the terms adultery or perhaps a, a term which is you know, a little more crude, you know, going a whoring after other gods. So this is when the Israelites then forsook the covenant or they contaminated the covenant in their minds with, with false thinking. They became syncretistic. And so they brought in other gods. Israel was to be loyal to God alone, just as in a marriage, a wife is to be totally faithful to her husband. So that was to be the relationship between Israel and God. But then Israel, in going after these other gods and bringing in other deities, was unfaithful in that sense, and therefore committing spiritual adultery. And this is something that just occurs time and time again within the Old Testament. And really, we probably in the New Testament, we see symptoms of this too, even among even among believers, that tendency to go back to to the old gods or even the new gods, as the case may be, depending upon when someone is alive. So why are they continually attracted to these idols? Well, I would say we can speak in general terms in the sense that the devil is always throwing temptations at uh, people of faith. So where the devil sees people worshiping the true God in the right way, he has to come in there and try and upset things and mess up things and divert their worship of the true God to something else. That's the devil's goal. And so he's very tricky. He knows the weaknesses of people. He knows how to hit them with temptations. And so that would be a general statement. We can talk about also a natural man. People by nature are sinful and unclean and corrupt and spiritually blind, actually enemies of God and running away from God by nature. And so they have a natural opposition to the truth and an attraction to what is bad, to what is false, to what is wrong. So that would cover all people by nature. But then again, with regard to those who have been brought to faith, the devil likes to hit them with temptations. He wants them to separate themselves from the truth, to forget about the truth, to water down the truth, to corrupt it, and then eventually to have false worship. Now, speaking about the situation in Israel, some other things can be brought in. Israel was like an island in a a vast sea. Israel was surrounded by paganism. So where was the truth to be found in in the time of the Old Testament? Basically, it was there in Israel. It wasn't there in Egypt. The Egyptians did not have the word of God. Neither did the Mesopotamians, the Syrians, the Edomites, and so forth. So Israel was surrounded by all this paganism. This was a constant pressure on the nation. And therefore, the very strict commands from the Lord with regard to idolatry and not allowing anything to creep in, no toleration for any hint of paganism, within Israel. 
And so that was one factor involved, this constant pressure, this being surrounded by idolatry. And then when you actually study the various types of idolatry, well, they had aspects which would appeal to the baser nature of people. For example, there were fertility aspects which involved a sexual practice at the cultic shrines, at the worship places of these false gods. And there were, in fact, sacred ones there, so-called sacred ones, who were there to engage in sexual practice with the worshipers. They did that in part to catch the attention of the gods, to move the gods, to bestow fertility on the land, on the crops, on the animals, on people. And also, probably they did this to bring in money for these various cultic pagan shrines. But see, something like that, you know, you know these sexual erotic aspects would appeal to uh, people. We can understand this. We see this happening all around us today. And this would be a temptation indeed to believers. And something else that we can think about is that, well, sometimes people then, you know, weaker spiritually are thinking, well, maybe those pagans or maybe those Edomites or those Moabites or those Ammonites you know, with their beliefs, maybe they have something. And maybe we can learn from them. And, you know, nothing wrong with, you know, hedging our bets and covering our bases. (laughs) And so, you know, we want to, you know, remember our God and the the covenant name for God in the Old Testament is Yahweh. We don't want to desert him completely. But there's nothing wrong with, you know, paying attention to these other deities. You know, there might be a bit of truth and, you know, in these various religions as well. And we can learn from them and, you know, showing some obeisance to these false, uh, to these gods, to these various gods, um, might help us then. You know, they might help us with our crops, with our own personal problems and so forth. Uh, we need all the help we can get. And so this could, you know, benefit us. And so that's how people think. They become soft theologically, weak theologically. They are tempted. They are, they're open to these other ideas. And so then they, they bring in these false gods. And then what also can happen? What can that lead to? Well, eventually then, I mean, syncretism is bad enough. That's false worship. But even worse is when they desert, desert Yahwism or Yahweh altogether and are just totally into idolatry. Makes me think of Benny from the first Mummy movie when the, the mummy's coming towards him and he's pulling out all of these different symbols and, and making up different prayers <laughs> in an attempt to save his own skin. When we talk about the Old Testament and the pressures that were surrounding Israel, how could we apply that to our own situation, Dr. Meyer? I mean, because we don't want to think of this as just a uniquely Old Testament problem, right? right the, yeah, the symptoms you describe of, hey, maybe we can derive benefit from these false teachers over here or these false gods over here. Really, it sounds like something we might have to deal with today. It sounds like many of the gurus out there or the pop culture theologians or or the supposed spiritual teachers we're supposed to listen to. It doesn't seem so far removed from our situation at the heart of it. No, it is not. And so how do we encounter this today? Well, in the sense of being tolerant, in the sense of being broad-minded. No, we have to be careful with those terms. They could be used in a proper way, understood in, in a right way. But so often today in our society, it means, well, recognizing that your religion is just one among many, 
And while it might be valid, then there is validity with these other religions as well. And no one is better than the other. No one has the franchise on the truth. We can learn from studying all these religions. And to say that your religion is the only true one, that then you're being narrow-minded. You're not being tolerant. You're showing ignorance and you're just uh, too strict. And so people will accuse you of being I know, a, a bigot. They'll accuse you of, of thinking in an arrogant way. Well, you have the truth and these others don't. Well, what makes you so good? And so there's that pressure on our people today to be open to these other religions. Now, we respect all people and we operate in respect and love with others. But our highest love, our first loyalty is to God and to his word. And so we have to hold to that truth in an unwavering fashion without any compromise whatsoever. And we hold to that truth for our own good, for the good of our loved ones, our people whom we serve, and and indeed for the world. We have to give a clear witness. Now, we hold to this truth in humility, and we always speak the truth in love. We want to be as winsome as possible, but we hold to the truth, and we don't give in to this pressure of the world. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me, and that's the truth. We don't waver from that. As Luther, we take our stand on the word. We cannot be moved from that. But we're eager to share this truth with others in in different ways, whatever ways are effective. And we do this once again in humility and love. So that's that's a, a temptation from the world. That's pressure from the world today. Give in. See this, you know, and have this, you know, stance of being broad minded, you know, enlightened in this modern sense and tolerant. And there we have to be very careful And then as well, there are various lifestyles out there. And, you know, this is the temptation. This is the old temptation to our to our sinful nature. And sometimes this temptation has, you know, sexual aspects, just as back in the days of Israel. So now. And so, you know, don't hold so strictly to your word of God. Are there some exceptions, for example, to the sixth commandment? when you can operate and that might be, you know, acceptable. And of course, you know, what is available today on the internet, on the TV screen and so forth, you know, all this adds up to massive temptation confronting people today and in particular believers. Well, as we close out this segment then, what is a remedy for temptation or or sort of a bulwark against this kind of temptation that every Christian is going to face in this pluralistic society? There's nothing new about this answer. This is the the old-fashioned answer. Be in the Word. Be in the Word of God. And of course, that also means to be in the sacrament, the sacrament of Holy Communion. Because being in the Word, you know, this is, these are the means of grace. And this is how God preserves us in the faith, and he strengthens us in the faith, and he gives us spiritual wisdom and spiritual strength. So wisdom to discern what is right, what is wrong, and we always do that based on the word of God. The word of God is our constant and sure guide. And then we also have the spiritual strength to resist the temptations and to stand for the truth, to stand on the truth, and to turn back the pressures from the world, to endure the pressures of the world, and 
Also, you know, as we see this happening now more and more in our day and age, persecution from the world. And so be in the word, thinking of Psalm 1, blessed is the person who is in the word of God and always bearing fruit from the Lord. And that person will stand with the righteous congregation on the last day. So that's the advice. It's simple. Stay in the word and the sacrament. Amen. We've got to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. But he said, Yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Hang tight. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. We are back. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills and Zelwyn Heidi talking with Dr. Walter Meyer III of Concordia Theological Seminary about Asherah worship and idolatry in the Old Testament. So we talked a bit about idolatry in general, what that means, what the Christian antidote to it is, how we can resist that great temptation that has afflicted the faithful for nearly all of time. So now let's take a look specifically at what we're dealing with in parts of the Old Testament. So let's begin with the big baddies in a lot of texts, the Canaanites. (laughs) What does Canaanite religion look like? Canaanite religion was polytheistic. In other words, they worshiped a number of gods. And with regard to the gods and Canaanite religion, a tremendous source of information for that, known as the Ugaritic texts. And these were texts discovered by archaeologists in the 1920s and a little bit after that in at Ugarit, which is along the eastern Mediterranean coastline to the just to the north and a little bit to the west of Israel, so along the coastline there. And scholars are pretty much agreed that this is a good representation of Canaanite religion and going back some some centuries in time. And these texts are various in nature, but they include mythological texts. And here's where we get especially the information about gods and goddesses. Now, there has to be some reconstruction of these texts, and you know have, they have to be put into a certain order. But according to very common understanding, there was again a number there was uh, the matter there was the matter of polytheism and so a number of gods worship we can talk about a council of the gods now the chief god the head of the pantheon in other words the, the whole list of gods the head of the pantheon was ale 
And he was like the uh, father god, the head god. And then there were other gods, and they were masculine in nature. Uh, one was Yam, and he had association with the sea and uh, association with the chaotic forces of nature. There was the god Mot, and he was the god of death and the underworld. There was a craftsman god. There was also, of course, the god Baal. And Baal is actually a title which, you know, came in, in a sense to be his, his personal name. This god is associated with the storm, with the rains, which were so necessary for life in the ancient Near East. So he was the god who bestowed the rains and also bestowed dew on the earth. And the people in those ancient times desperately depended. They, they needed this precipitation from the god Baal. In the course of time, not this is not reflected so much in the Ugaritic text, but then after those texts were written, after the history of Ugarit, and going on further into the history of the ancient Near East, it seems, and this is partly reflected in scripture, that Baal then, as the storm god, assumed the chief position. And we have language from the mythological texts about Baal, that he was like the rider on the clouds. His chariot was riding on the clouds. His voice was the thunder and his spear was the lightning bolt. And so again, he's associated with the storms which provided for the people the life-giving, the life-sustaining rains, the precipitation. Now, there were also goddesses uh, with regard to Canaanite religion. And the first one to be mentioned is Asherah. Why? Because she was the chief wife or the chief consort of the head of the pantheon, Ael. She then was willing to use her position of influence, her prominent position, for the good of people or for, you know, to get back at people in judgment on them. And so she had this position of, of prominence uh, as the chief wife of the head of the pantheon and various aspects to her character. She was a mother goddess, a goddess of fertility. She was a goddess of grace and beauty. Erotic aspects were associated with her. She was associated with the sea. Her servant is known as the fisherman. She, you know, was in charge of people's general welfare. She even had some warlike aspects to her. We have in some of the text flashes of her being angry and you know, thus also warlike. So there was a wide domain associated with Asherah. Now, other goddesses, one would be Anat. Now, she was a violent warlike goddess, and she was an associate of Baal. And another goddess would be, for example, Ashtart, and she had some overlapping features with Asherah. The common perception of polytheism, maybe probably heavily influenced by Greek and Roman religion, is that a god or a goddess has a very narrowly defined domain. You know, we think of like Neptune being the god of the sea, for example, or we think of Zeus being, you know, the thunder god or something like that. When, but when you speak of Asherah as having all of these different kinds of domains, is it fair to say that it's a little 
looser than maybe what we might think of polytheism? This is still a very certainly a part of polytheism because she was just okay. one deity worshipped among many. Okay. Now, as, as far as you know, her range of influence and power, yeah, this was rather far-reaching. She had different aspects to her to her rule, to her influence, to her to her power. But this is still very much a part of polytheism. And so sometimes uh, gods overlapped in what they could do. So it's both and. Okay. Yam, Yam was the god of, of chaos associated with the sea. Moat was associated with death. But he could, at, at one point, you know, he could have Baal under his control. And then at another point, Baal would be free from Moat. And he would be operating then on his own. So we don't always you know, want to impose on you know, this pagan religion, you know, strict divisions. It was looser than that. And also we don't want to impose, you know, our Western logic. We have to have everything logical and fitting in just a neat way. <laughs> and that's not how it was very often with ancient Near Eastern paganism, polytheism. And so let me also say this, with regard to this polytheism, the flexibility as far as, you know, domains are concerned. And for example, a man from Mesopotamia could come over to Canaan and say, well, you know, I recognize in in this God you worship uh, strong similarities to this God I worship back in my homeland. And so I'm willing to uh, worship your God as well. Or there could be the tendency to, to blend the gods together. I call them by this name, you call them by that name, but, you know, in essence, it's the same God. And so that was one feature in ancient Near Eastern polytheism and this this willingness to recognize other gods. A man would have his own native gods, his personal gods, but certainly he would he'd be open to worshiping gods in a, in a different land and with a different people. And so that was one phenomenon. Another phenomenon, sometimes one deity in, in the course of time would split into two. And then there was the other opposite phenomenon, and that would be when two deities would be combined into one. So there was this fluidity, and we might also say very often the situation was chaotic. You certainly see that like with Egyptian religion, with that merging especially of deities so that you would have two becoming one. But now, as you mentioned, this worship of different gods, and especially as they're moving to different areas, as the Canaanites were moving out of Canaan, and they were moving further west and becoming what we would know as the Phoenicians. Do you think that that was them just actually importing their gods and just calling them by different names? Or is that is it the same kind of adaptation? Because I know that you, you think of Asherah and Tanit, for example, uh, the goddess Tanit in Phoenicia as being the same deity. Is that correct? Yes, I do. I, I believe that they should be identified with each other. Yes. So Asherah and the goddess Tanit. Now, what happened, we can speak about the Phoenicians in the mainland. You know, they're along the eastern Mediterranean coastline. They were the neighbors of the Israelites. And very often, you know, friendly relations between the two nations, Phoenicia and Israel. Mm-hmm. Was certainly the case in the time of King David. David and, and Hiram were friends. They were allies of each other. And this continued on in the time of Solomon. And that's how, you know, Solomon could build the temple using Phoenician materials, natural resources, and also Phoenician craftsmen. And this happened later on in the time of the divided monarchy, a time of peace and alliance. For example, this is how, you know, Jezebel, you know, a Phoenician princess, comes over into the northern kingdom as the wife of, of Ahab, etc. 
Mm-hmm. So we speak about the the homeland Phoenicia, but the Phoenicians were the great sailors of the Eastern Mediterranean world. And Phoenicia, one problem with that country, they were strapped for land. It just had a, a relatively narrow strip of land there along the Eastern Mediterranean. And so they were always out uh, looking for new areas to, to settle new areas from which they could draw in important, valuable, natural resources. And so they sailed west in the Mediterranean basin there, and they would move farther and farther west. But as they sailed and and landed at different places, they would establish these colonies. And these colonies then were known as the Punic colonies. And we can speak then of these Punic sites. And then these colonies or these these sites developed into important areas on their own. So they were started by the Phoenicians, but then they developed on their own and they became you know, prominent in their own right. One very well-known example of this is the city of Carthage, which is a Punic settlement, but it became a very important city there in the Mediterranean world and certainly along the coast of Northern Africa. And so, yes, in this way, Phoenician civilization has spread to the West, but also this meant the spread of Phoenician religion. And so we can speak of Punic religion, but that would have strong ties to what was seen back in the homeland in Phoenicia. Certainly there could be development over time, and you can also think of regional variation, regional development, but nevertheless, there was this connection yet with the old homeland Phoenician religion. And Phoenician religion, then we can tie in with Canaanite religion. Press F for Hannibal and his elephants. But... I think that's that's an interesting to bring out because one of the aspects of Carthaginian religion that I think continuously gets brought out, of course, if people know anything about Carthage, is their practice of child sacrifice. How was that connected to the worship of Tanit and in, in that way, the worship of Asherah? Well, there are inscriptions and there are signs, symbols associated with these precincts of child sacrifice. They're known as tophets. Okay. And archaeologists have found these in various Punic settlements or cities, and they have thus unearthed urns, urns. They have uncovered urns, and they've dumped out the contents, and they've analyzed the contents. And sometimes the contents are the charred remains of an animal that was sacrificed. But then also they have found the charred remains of children. In one urn, sometimes one child, there could also be two children, not not as common would be three. But definitely the remains of children, you know, charred remains. And so this leads to the conclusion that these children were offered up in sacrifice. They were burned up in these tophets, in these precincts, portions of the cities. And yes, uh, from other evidence in those regions and those precincts, we can say that one of the deities involved was Tanit, and Tanit uh, can be seen as another name for Asherah, as well as male deities. And so this was part of their religion. And recently, not, not so long ago, these Evidences for child sacrifice were discovered also back in the homeland, hmm. back in Phoenicia. So for a while, our only evidence for Canaanite religion that you know child sacrifice was a part of this was the evidence coming from the Punic settlements. And so it was sort of indirect, but now in a more 
in more recent archaeological findings, there has, there has been evidence of this uncovered back actually in the homeland. So all the, you know, the biblical text talking about uh, child sacrifice are absolutely accurate. What drove the Canaanites and the Carthaginians, you know, Phoenicians, all of them, to this practice? Because we would see this as being completely abhorrent and for good reason. But obviously, they hope to gain something by it. So, I mean, what is, what is their motivation in offering up their own children? Well, that's an excellent question. And I would have to admit that there's some uncertainty about this. And you want to do this in all honesty, but we can use our, our reason and, and some bits of evidence and put forth proposals. Okay. And one proposal would be this. Well, the gods were the ones who were responsible for bestowing fertility. They, they were the ones who gave you know, children. And so in gratitude to the deities, you give back a part of what the gods have given to you. So it was a, a sign of reverence, hmm. a sign of gratitude, a sign of acknowledging that, yes, you deities gave us the children. And so now in gratitude, we want to give back part to you. So that is one proposal. Another proposal is that uh, this is a little more cynical now. <laughs> this is a way of population control, hmm. limiting you know size of families, and so there wouldn't be so many mouths to feed, and also you know an inheritance it wouldn't be divided up among so many children, but it would stay in a, in a more narrow in a smaller group. So that has also been suggested as a reason for child sacrifice. Something else that comes up. And this would be, you know, offering up children in a time of emergency. You're giving to the gods what is most precious to you. Look, I'm giving you what is most precious to me. Now, please, please help me, you know, in this time of emergency. So it's like the extreme measure to move the gods to help in a crisis. In the Bible, you have passages like making your sons and daughters pass through the fire to Moloch. Would you see that as for the same sort of reasons, especially in terms of that crisis outlook? It could have been, you know, at, at certain times that might have been the situation indeed. Mm -hmm. At other times, it might just have been you no know, regular part of practice, pagan practice. You know, this aspect of recognizing the gods as the source of gifts and now in honor of the gods, you know, giving back a portion to them. So I think it'd be both and, you know, at times of crisis and also, you know, as a regular part of the religion. Yeah. And I just want to thank you, Dr. Meyer, for taking time out of your day to talk about such a horrible subject. <laughs> <laughs> it's the thought that always occurs to me and, and it has for a long time and it, and it goes up even into the Greek period and things where, where you look at these, you know, offerings to gods. I mean, even way back, even, even more ancient here, and you wonder, are they effectual? What motivates someone to give so greatly to a false god? And that's something that's probably unknowable, wouldn't you say, Dr. Meyer? I mean, ultimately, other than some kind of spiritual delusion. Let me say this then, since you asked that question, Willie, and that would be, what was the motivation? In, in all this paganism, there is an essence of works righteousness. Uh, we have to remember that. Anything apart from the true religion, any other religion at bottom line is this. It's a works righteous religion. And so 
with regard to the offerings, not only the offerings of, of children, but you know the various kinds of offerings that they had, they were hoping to win the favor of the gods. And it was sort of like this. Well, I scratch your back, you scratch my back. I do this for you and you do this for me. This is a way I'm going to be, get, be getting myself right with you. Look at all that I'm giving to you. And certainly this will put me in good, good stance with, with you. And is, so is, are, they, are they aiming then for blessings in the afterlife in this context, or is it only temporal blessings? I would say that it's mainly this life and, tempor- and temporal. In other words, with regard to Egyptian religion, you have there a whole you know, system with regard to the afterlife, and that's brought out in their texts, in their pictorial representations, and so forth. But with Canaanite religion, it was very much concerned with this life and blessings in this life, physical blessings, abundant crops, large herds, you know, children, and so forth. And so that is what we see especially with regard to Canaanite religion. But one other thought, and I'll make this very brief comment, we're appalled by the child sacrifice that went on. But compare that to our practice of abortion today. Right. And how much of a difference is there in the end? So that's just all I want to say on that. Right. Well, yeah, we're going to give up this child so that very often we can make life easier for ourselves or appear to receive something better by getting rid of this, right? Isn't that the idea? It's exchanging the good gift of God that is a child for some kind of temporal blessing. Very, very good point. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion with Dr. Meyer here on Word Fitly Spoken. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. The mission of Word Fitly Spoken is to put the Word of God at the center of all of life. To find out more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Dr. Meyer has joined us to talk about idolatry, and we continue our discussion of Asherah worship. Now, as most of us would read through these texts, we will come to this discussion of Asherah poles or Asherah groves, or just the groves, as the old, the older translations used to put it. If we're working, say, from the ESV, then, what would be an Asherah pole, Dr. Meyer? Well, this was definitely an object associated with idolatrous worship, and it was something that could be set up. The word pole does not actually occur in the Hebrew text. Rather, it's it's simply like the asherahs. That would be, you know, the plural, the plural form. And 
from evidence that we can draw out of various passages in Scripture, again, this was something that could be set up. It could be cut down. Some of them, at least, were made of wood or partly of wood. And since they're referred to as you know, Asherahs, it seems that at least at first they were somehow associated with the goddess Asherah. There could have been a plaque at the top of like a pole, which would have been a representation of the deity of, of Asherah. These could be more crude in nature. They could be more sophisticated, made of cheaper materials, made of more expensive materials. There could have been local variations. There could be more than one setup. And so we have to admit, in the end, we're not exactly sure what an Asherah was. But you know, these various points that I just made you know, come to us from, from different passages in scripture, so we can have a general idea. And at least, again, I, mean, I said this before, at least at first they were associated with the worship of Asherah. And so a representation of her, it could be more abstract, it could be more concrete. These are all possibilities. More symbolic, more realistic, as far as a representation of the goddess is concerned. Now, they were put up because the people were worshiping Asherah. And they wanted to have a representation of her presence there and to have a reminder of this deity. And, you know, thus worship would be offered to her. In the course of time, it's possible that the Asherah then became a more general symbol, not just associated with the goddess Asherah per se, but representing the female in the divine in general. And so that, that's a possibility as far as development is concerned. With some of the Israelites, with their blending together of Yahwism, the worship of Yahweh with paganism, they might have put up the Asherah so as a representation of Asherah or some other goddess or the female uh, divine aspect in general, but then also seeing that as associated with Yahweh in the sense that Yahweh then had a consort or that Yahweh had a wife. Now, again, this is, this is terrible theology. It, it's appalling to us. It's, it's, <laughs> it's an abomination. But given their ancient Near Eastern context and what they were seeing in their neighbors all around them, and the people then being weak theologically and even giving up the truth, this could have been a natural development. Yes, Yahweh, you know, he had a wife and then putting up the Asherah as a representation of that. I know when you were mentioning the names of the various Canaanite gods, I couldn't help but notice that so many of them were just the same word in Hebrew as, you know, the thing that they were associated with, like Yom being associated with the sea, and that's the same word for the sea. And so I could see it as a very easy transition in a weak theological mind of a saying, oh, well, God is just like, like you said, is, you know, this is just God in a different form. So why couldn't we say that he had a wife? That's an indictment, of course, against the Israelites. They should have been a lot more faithful to the Lord, their God. But it is, it's at least interesting. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. And it, it's reflecting, you know, their knowledge of the surrounding religions and they're, they're going along with with that. And so it's it's the opposite. It's, it's, of course, it's false theology, but Israel was to be, you know, unlike the other 
right. nations in the sense of not following in their paganism and not following in their wicked lifestyle. But now Israel is just blending in, so to speak. Well, what kind of examples do we have in the scriptures of Asherah worship? You, you mentioned that we kind of gather this idea of what the poles or whatever the Asherahs might have been from the scripture. So what, what are some of those examples? Well, anytime you have mention of an Asherah, you know, that idolatrous object in scripture, then we could say that that's either specifically associated with the worship of Asherah or in general, you know, again, representing the female in the divine. Mm -hmm. But also we have, for example, the text in uh, first Kings chapter 18, in which Elijah has the confrontation with the false prophets, the prophets sponsored by Jezebel, the wife of Ahab. And Elijah refers to the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. And so there we have in the text a reference to Asherah worship promoted at the royal court in Samaria in the Northern Kingdom. So Samaria, the capital of the Northern Kingdom. Mm -hmm. I know there is some text critical debate, uh, the 400 prophets of Asherah, if that was a part of the original text, I've studied that, and I've come to the conclusion that, yes, it should be considered part of the original text. So there is some evidence as well. In the time of Manasseh, in, during his wicked reign, and that was the majority of his reign, a terrible king, at the very end, he had a change and a reformation, but it was too little too late. But during the first portion, the larger portion of his reign, the text speaks about his putting up an Asherah and also an image of Asherah. So that definitely made a comeback with the reign of Manasseh. And this now was in the southern kingdom, in the city of Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And so this was a different matter than with Jezebel, who was part of the northern kingdom. And then we have later on in the southern kingdom there in Jerusalem, a mention of weavings or hangings for Asherah. This was during the reign of Josiah and something that he took care of in his re religious reformation. What exactly that means, we're uncertain at this point. Now, as far as the weavings, the weavings, the, the hangings for Asherah, was this special clothing associated with worship? We just cannot say for, for certain. So Asherah worship then was kind of always a persistent problem in Israel? Yes, Asherah worship or else, you know, worship of some female principle associated with the divine. So it could have been specifically thinking of Asherah, that's, that's a possibility, or it could be just a matter of that, that female side of the divine. Do we have any other texts that would shed some light then on Asherah worship, say Gideon and Judges, for example? That that's probably where you alluded to that we we know we can whatever an Asherah is we know we can cut it down right we probably get that from Gideon. Well, we have to review that text and, and what the text says there. But whenever there is mention of an Asherah, you know, being put up or being cut down and destroyed, that was something that was dealing with paganism, an, an aspect of paganism, an element of pagan worship, and yes, associated with the feminine. And then, uh, in, in particular, it could have been Asherah. And so, yeah, this is, this is a long-lasting worship. In my dissertation uh, for my doctorate, I studied the extra-biblical evidence for Asherah. 
And a good case can be made for seeing this worship of Asherah persisting actually into the early centuries of the Christian era. Different forms, perhaps the goddess blended together with another goddess or goddesses, but yes, uh, we can see it persisting to a certain extent, even into the Christian era. So it was long lasting, it was widespread. Yeah, so we're looking, I mean, even from in the biblical chronology, Exodus all the way into the early part of the New Testament then? Well, it was it was early with Israel, and it continued you know, with Israel. We can say that this continued up, up to the time of the ending of the northern kingdom. And then, you know, false worship, which probably included, to a certain extent, worship of Asherah, and certainly you know, of, the, of the feminine side of the divine, that continued in the southern kingdom up to the fall of Jerusalem. And then we come to the Babylonian captivity, and then the ending of the captivity, the post-exilic era. And, you know, idolatry is is mentioned, is mentioned in the uh, post-exilic literature. I don't recall in the post-exilic literature specific mention of Asherah, but we have, again, extra-biblical information which indicates that it did persist in the Mediterranean world throughout the Old Testament era and even going into then the early centuries of the New Testament era. Interesting. So what then was God's remedy in the Old Testament for these idols? No toleration of those idols whatsoever. They're they're not to be in Israel, and if you find them, destroy them. Even uh, false prophets, those who are promoting, you know, the worship of another God, they were to be executed, put to death. And so this was God's remedy on the one hand to just not allow it in if it creeps in to wipe it out, allow no compromise, no continuing existence, because that would always have a negative impact on the people and allow no false teaching whatsoever. Now, on the other hand, what would, was God's remedy? The, pre, the presentation of the truth. Truth is, is the best way then to deal with, with falsehood. And so holding to the word of God, walking in the word and rejecting the ways of the unbelieving world and the teachings of the unbelieving world and, and holding entirely and solely to God's word and living by that. This was God's remedy, and he would give his people prophets who delivered to the people his word. And this was then how God would deal with these falsehoods, with this pressure from the unbelieving world. Would it be fair to say that while we may not go around cutting down pagan altars, that God does still command us, like at least in our own lives, to cut off these sources of idolatry? that we should be so willing to root them out entirely as Josiah did? Absolutely. Now, God had a different way of operating in the Old Testament era with his covenant people, the Israelites. You saw it was necessary back then for them, for their spiritual welfare, for their spiritual heritage. Now we're living in the New Testament era and things aren't exactly the same, but the principles carry over. No toleration for for falsehood, no compromise with falsehood Mm -hmm. and cutting out of our lives anything that could lead to idolatry. And if we're, if we slipped, you know, and anyone, one of us can slip, we're all still sinful this side of heaven. 
if there is, you know, an aspect of idolatry in our life, then we have to deal with that decisively and quickly and absolutely eliminate it from our lives. Is it kind of like Acts 19, where the pagans are converted and a number who practiced magic arts brought their books and burned them in the sight of everyone? And it was a great personal cost to them to do so? Absolutely, yep. So a fruit of repentance then would be to get rid of our former idols. Absolutely. A fruit of repentance then, and living the repentant life, the life of faith, is to reject what is wrong, what is false, and then to hold to the Word of God and live according to it, and and then live in a manner which is in accordance with the will of God. And so it's it's both and, the positive and, and the negative. But again, always being on guard against idolatry. And the devil will work hardest on the church where the truth is and on believers who have faith in the one true God. And he will try his best to uh, draw believers away from the word and away from the faith. And so maintaining constant vigilance. We're the church militant. This side of heaven, there's no let up. We always have to be uh, recognizing that and standing on guard. And we can do so, you know, using the sword of the spirit, you know, which is the word of God. One of the, one of the other things that I think gets mentioned, and this is kind of back earlier in the notes, Dr. Meyer, you do have mention of other idolatrous practices in Israel. And one in particular that I thought of, but I, as we were talking during the break, you didn't think was uh, applicable, was the, the queen of heaven in Jeremiah 7. Would you be willing to flesh that out a little bit? Well, I, I have to, would have to study that text a little bit more, but I, I think it is more pertaining to Ashtart, so another okay. goddess of the Canaanite pantheon. And so, you know, it's related to Asherah worship, but I don't think it is to be connected with Asherah worship, but with another goddess of the Canaanites. Now, l- let me also say this. We can see, for example, in the Psalms, an apologetic outreach. In other words, some of the phraseology in the Psalms is very similar to what we see in the Ugaritic literature. Phraseology used of Baal, you know, the rider on the clouds, hurling the lightning bolt, his voice is the thunder. Uh, We have that in the Ugaritic literature, and we have similar language in some of the Psalms. And so what do we make of that? We can say that the Israelites were borrowing from their ancient Near Eastern milieu, the mindset, the the phraseology that was common, and they were applying that to Yahweh. And they were saying then, in essence, to their neighbors, Yahweh is the true God. This is true of him. Hmm. And so, again, an apologetic outreach. And some of the Canaanites then, I should say, the surrounding Gentile nations, people from those nations would come through Israel, they could be in Jerusalem for various reasons. And so they could come into contact with the truth and, and even some of the worship of Israel. And so when you see this similar phraseology, that's one thought that comes to mind, uh, sort mm-hmm. of like a missionary appeal. We know what you're saying, but listen, here's the truth. It, it's, it's about Yahweh. And so that also brings up something which is like another thought, you know, this missionary theme, which is in the Old Testament, that'd be another discussion. (laughs) No, it's a a great point, though, because I've encountered that same idea before with Psalm 104 being compared to the hymn to the Aten from Akhenaten. Okay. 
from the Egyptian literature and where people will say that the psalm has so many similar kind of phrases as this hymn. And I always just was a little bit skeptical of it, but that actually makes an excellent point to say, hey, we can use this language and borrow it, but we're doing it to say, here is the true God. Here is what is actually the, you know, the truth. Not, not the Aten, not the Canaanite gods, but the, the Lord God Almighty. Yes. I think, that's a, I think that's a great point. Well, gentlemen, we're coming close to the end of our time. Do we have any, Dr. Meyer, do you have any final remarks for us before we sign off? I would say that there's nothing new under the sun. That's not original with me. (laughs) (laughs) That comes from a certain book in scripture, as you all know. The idea is that there is the sinful world and the continuing temptations and the church militant, but the Lord is with us and the Lord strengthens us for the battle through his word and sacrament. And so as already emphasized, we stay in the word and sacrament. That's the best way to proceed. That's the way of blessedness. That's the way of truth. There we have a light for our path. So that can't be stressed enough. We want to stress it with all the people we we serve, especially with the young people as they move on in life and are surrounded by temptations, you know, hold to the word. Well, thank you very much for coming on. We really appreciate your wisdom and your time and everything, and hopefully we can have you back on in the future. I would look forward to that, and great to be with you, brothers, and blessings on your work. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. Thanks for listening. God love you, and God bless. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, and bring her into the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her, and there I will give her vineyards, and make the valley of Achor a door of hope, and there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the bales from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord.